Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome to the On The Tape Podcast. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined in studio by Danny Moses and Guy Christopher Adami. Welcome, people. I'm so used to Guy bringing uh, us in on a 1974 no, no, no. We'll, we'll, We're going to get there. I'm just a little we, have, we have a big show today. Yeah. We have Savita Subramanian. She is Bank of America's head of equity strategy. Danny and I sat down with her, and she had a really interesting note out this week. She was on CNBC's Fast Money with you, Guy, earlier in the week. It was another brick in the wall of worry, if you saw what she was doing there. And we had a nice little feisty conversation with her. I think she's a bit more optimistic about stocks than we are. That being said, she doesn't have a price target too much higher than where the market is trading right now. So we go through that. We go through some of the sectors that she's well, It's actually lower in. than where the market is it now. Is it's 4,300. But well, yes, there, there you go. Details. And then Earlier in the week, you and I, we did a market call from CME, our fine sponsor out in Chicago. We were out there for a Pearl Jam concert. And usually, Guy, you get us in to the show with a lyric or, or a song title or something like that here a little bit. And Danny and I were at the Pearl Jam concert, the United Center, on Tuesday night. And what did I say to you? I said, I got the title. I yep. got the title. Yep. They were playing a song called Wishlist. This is off the 1998 album of Yield. So this would be two weeks in a row, Guy. You picked Better Man for last week, but I heard this lyric, and I know this lyric, and I like the song, and Danny's going to sing it for us. He says, <laughs> I wish I was a messenger, and I all the news I was, was good. I was a messenger, and all the news was good. That's really good. And he came, like Eddie. it was during the encore, and he played it to the back. He played it, he turned around and played it right. to the people, because he's the best. So, so, he's, so, and he's we're going to get to, and we wish all the news was good, but then this second, the second <laughs> line, right after that yeah. lyric, guy, this one was for you. He, Eddie was speaking to you, I wish I was the full moon shining off of Camaro's hood. Exactly. And I, I was speaking to you, didn't you have a Camaro back in Wait the 70s? Wait a second, no, 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 no. Don't, what, don't dax me on this Camaro stock. Okay. I've never had yeah. A Camaro. But I understand what you're doing there. You figure, I know, I'm Italian, I'm Sicilian. Oh. All Italian Sicilians have Camaro. I understand what you're doing here. 
that's called what is it stereotyping all right i'm sorry but about i that. hear you it's not no it sounds like a good song though who is this this the is the, this is the pearl jam all right let, let, let's get into wishing all the news was good okay so the stock market until this week uh, okay over the course of the summer yeah august was a little rocky and we did have that kind of melt up into the labor day weekend a little bit but some some of the news out of china and we've been talking about this now for months okay the economic data is not particularly good and now the, the saber rattling guy with you U.S. companies. Okay, we talked a little bit about Gina Raimondo going over there, our Commerce Secretary, to China. It didn't seem like there was a whole heck of a lot of progress made. And then you come back, and I think this headline that the Chinese are going to ban, okay, the use of iPhones by government workers, that's taken off 8 9% market cap off of Apple, which started the week at $3 trillion market cap. Talk to us a little bit about this, because this really feels like a massive shot across the bow for U.S. multinationals. It's another salvo, and it's I will say this, I'm choosing to use this word. It's actually embarrassing to see the amount of people that we have paraded out to China to try to um, ease the tensions that have grown. It started with Anthony Blinken. I think uh, John Kerry went over there. Then Janet Yellen, God only knows what she was doing there. And as you just mentioned, Gina Raimondo there over the course of probably six months. And what seems to happen is they come back and say how great everything went and then in the weeks or days subsequent, one of these one of these axes types of fall. And this is a clear escalation, in my opinion. And I have said it on Fast Money for a long time. I've said it on our shows that my concern is that the Chinese will escalate. They will ratchet up the rhetoric and the biggest bullseye on the biggest company will be Apple. And I will tell you, I'm shocked that Apple didn't fall more than it did over the last couple of trading days. And we'll see. Maybe we're in the midst of something. But the existential risk, in my opinion, for Apple is something like this to continue to escalate in China. And to say it's not a big deal, it's a big deal. And oh, by the way, Dan and Danny, and you both know this, Apple was an expensive stock going into this entire thing. So when you layer this on top, it does not paint a rosy picture. Yeah. So Danny, we, we've long said that the last battle fought will be Apple when you think about the t really close ties. And Tim Cook has spent 20 some years developing these ties as it relates to orienting their supply chains around there. And just when you think about what an important engine for growth this Chinese middle class has been, that's a big part of it. Obviously, cheap manufacturing is the other part of it. They get 20% or so of their sales from China. The fact that this isn't the last battle fought, it's actually, they went for the big kahuna. We've been threatening to TikTok and, and the like, and Huawei is, is a big one for yeah. them too, but this is a big deal. To the point you just made, it's an expensive stock anyway. The iPhone 15 launch may fall flat anyway. And yeah, we know that the geopolitical risk is being mispriced. It has been around the world, not just with China, but this always brings it to the headline and makes people think. But in the middle of all of this, the data out of China, forget about Apple yeah. for a second, continues to be bad. So if the Chinese consumer is in trouble, Apple sells to the Chinese consumer on top of obviously manufacturing there. The head of Foxconn just resigned or the chairman of Foxconn just left to run for president of Taiwan, obviously. I don't know if that's symbolic in nature or more if there's something else behind that, but Foxconn's business ain't great. We've known that for a while. So it's not like Apple's quarter. Let's go back to the last quarter. Not to it wasn't a great quarter. We, we know that. So I think a lot of people use Apple as a short 
and kind of the long, short books in tech, feeling like it's not one of these things that can get really memed from here like some of these other names can be. So we'll see. But it's feeding on itself yeah. for, for sure. Carter had a note out today or Thursday of this week talking about Apple's relative underperformance to the S&P tech sector for the last 11 months. And to your point, I actually do think it is a bit of a source of funds. When you think about how much of those shares are locked up, I think Berkshire owns 915 million shares. You think about that, right? And so again, I do think it that is a big one. Another one here, and we've been talking about Tesla a lot. I'm going to get us into this uh, for a second, but this is also a huge one when you think about Tesla, their expected growth out of China, the manufacturing, the access to rare earth materials, the whole like. But it's not just us who wants to talk about Tesla. We haven't talked about Tesla in a while. The Chinese data is not particularly good for Tesla. We know that they've cut prices there about seven times. I know they're introducing a new Model 3 on the low end. It might not be enough there. There is a deflationary spiral going on there, and they keep cutting prices for their cars with lots of competition. But here's a question from a reader. This is Walt in SC. That would be South Carolina. Big fan of the shows. Wondered if you had an opinion on how in the world Tesla is not being destroyed on the back of these comments by Elon Musk on the ADL and Twitter advertising. I think this is a really good one. Danny, you hit me about this. Some other friends of us, we've got a little chain going on here. There was just a couple weeks ago, he was talking about how Twitter's ad sales were actually maybe increasing. This whole little salvo that he did just the other night on Twitter, I think is suggesting something different. They're saying that maybe sales are down 60%. I've long thought, okay, that Tesla shareholders are on the hook for all of his behavior as it relates to other companies and specifically his $44 billion bid for Twitter. Okay. So talk to me a little bit about this because we've thought that the next buyer of an electric vehicle is somebody who probably doesn't prescribe maybe to some of his views as it relates to political things and the like here. So this was a big one, in my opinion. And the point that Walt said that, can you imagine what would happen if the CEO of Coke or Pepsi or UPS came out and made those statements? Listen, he's been Teflon. Elon, right? He's done worse things potentially than make those comments. And I'll just add that there's now, you see these articles come out in the Wall Street Journal about how he borrowed money from SpaceX, approved by him, who is the board, the board of SpaceX, billion dollars at the time to close the Twitter deal. He's used that as a source of liquidity in the past. And all his companies are intermeshed together, right? There's bigger stuff here. And then go back to the CFO resigning, right? In the middle of all of this. So this was a few weeks this, ago on a, a Friday weeks Night ago, Dirty, right? Kirkland, it was a yeah. Friday Night Dirty, yeah. CFO resignation, all this stuff. Kind of, so it's bigger than all that. Listen, he's been doing this type of stuff for a long time. The people that he's let back on Twitter and so forth. And I've gotten past that. I try to really look at the company. I've never liked the guy. I try to look at the company just yeah. on its own merits. Just pretend that he's a normal person. Stock's still expensive. So to your to the point that they're making, I don't know what it's going to take. Because if it hasn't cracked by now and all the things that have occurred, you're going to get me rolling here and I'll go back to money that he borrowed, right? Solar City borrowed, I yeah. believe, from SpaceX at the time on a loan. And then what happened? Tesla ends up buying Solar City, right? Because there was a margin call. This type of stuff, granted, that's not comments about the ADL in general, but nothing surprises me from this guy. He's basically made comments against every person in society at this point, I want to say. So leave it at that. Yeah. And Guy, specifically the questions as it relates to Tesla as the only publicly traded entity. And again, I don't think he'd be doing this if this was a publicly traded, Twitter was a publicly traded company. I, I don't know how that stock would be able to hack it in, in the public right. markets. Obviously, as Danny mentioned, he plays on a different playing field than everybody else. And that works obviously until it doesn't. And I think at a certain point, it's going to catch up to him vis-a-vis -vis the market. So let's just look at it through the lens of Tesla, which, by the way, here at $250 is still significantly lower, some probably 40% or so lower 
than the all-time high the stock made in November of 2021 or thereabouts. So the fact that the stock rallied from that 108-ish level that we saw in January of this year is interesting, but you're still talking about a stock that's still in a pretty significant downtrend. And it appears as though we're on that next leg lower. That's just my opinion. They continue to cut prices. That's not good. And again, what's going on in China, obviously, you can say it's not a big deal. It's a big deal. That tailwind is going away. The tailwind's becoming a headwind. You can speak to this. Danny can speak to this. And I want our listeners to think about it. It's one thing to cut prices if you think you will make up for it on the volume side of things. But if you're cutting prices and the demand's not there, things are going to happen very quickly. And those margins will continue to contract. A lot of people thought we saw trough margins for them last quarter. You know what? If they don't come in with something north of 17.5%, 18% in terms of margins, there's going to be a problem because people are going to start to say, wait a second, they're going to fall victim to the same thing that the historic, the legacy automakers have, 16% or so margins heading the wrong way. And I will tell you, that will not be good for the stock. There's massive call buying going on again, right? Every time there seems yep. to be bad news out, there's remarkably yeah. call buyer that's out there, just massive that are expiring literally tomorrow. They're being bought right now. See what happens here. But All right. Here's a couple dueling headlines from the Wall Street Journal on September 7th. That would be Thursday. And this is, I think this is actually the most interesting headline I read all this week, okay? Walmart cuts starting pay for some new hires, okay? So I think, Danny, you introduced this into the show notes here, into our rundown here. Walmart is paying some new store workers less than it would have three months ago, a sign that employees are seeking to cut labor costs. Employers are seeking to cut labor costs as the once hot market for hourly staff cooled. This was a big part of this whole narrative. Now, the other one, okay, I think this is really interesting from the Wall Street Journal, health insurance costs are taking the biggest jumps in years. So think about that, okay? So companies are actively, we know that they'll have to start cutting jobs, right? If they're starting to cut the wages, they're going to start cutting jobs, especially as health insurance costs and, and other costs are going up. And this is health insurance costs. This thing has been going on for years. There's a lot in that. And there's a couple things I'll comment on. Walmart, if you read what they wrote to their employees, they say that they're giving them the opportunity to do a lot more jobs within the company, be a cashier, stock, do whatever, so they have a chance for improvement within the managerial process. Basically, what they said is they're going to go back to minimum wage, whatever the state is. New York's a different minimum wage than Oklahoma, whatever, $14, $16, $17. But you're right. I think it's a way to kind of shield. Your second comment is interesting. So the health insurance market and the property insurance market. You can calculate inflation. I don't care how it's calculated into whatever. Those are pretty much must-haves, for (laughs) whether it's car insurance or health insurance for most people. The majority of people get health insurance through their companies. Those proposals come out now, right, for 2024. So what's happening is you're seeing market increases. Why are you seeing market increases? Because during the time of COVID, there was no hospital visits per se, your normal surgeries, normal hospitals, hospital costs were down. Now with COVID kind of being behind us, hopefully for the most part and people getting back to normal, there's more hospital visits. So they're blaming it on the hospitals that are charging the health insurance companies more than now passing it on. The employer has a choice, pass it on to you as an employer, eat it. Right. So either way, you're going to hurt the margin, hurt the consumer. But the second thing, homeowners insurance and property costs, all the catastrophes going on, that's going up too, way above the, the rate of inflation here. We're going on. So a lot in there, but people are facing higher costs. So when you think about, oh, I'm obsessed with the 10 year, oh, I'm obsessed with, with mortgage rates, these are everyday expenses that can hit the consumer. Look at United Healthcare stock today, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a huge part of the Dow versus the S&P, and that's why the Dow was up and the S&P was lower. But again, 
you can own these companies if you think that people can absorb those costs. So, Guy, you've been talking about pesky and persistent, okay? Energy costs are not down that much. If you look at the food, yeah, it's down a, a bit. But it's interesting that so the hourly wages, you've often long said that education, housing, health costs are not measured properly, as Danny just mentioned in the CPI reading. So you have the scenario where you're going to have inflation remain pesky and persistent. But if you have low-end wages start to drop here, and then going back to what we just talked about with Dollar Tree and Dollar Gen and some of these other retailers. That, Five that... below. It's not a good situation, Dan. And you're spot on to bring that up. And again, it's not coincidence, I don't think, that sitting here, we're looking at Walmart, which by the way, Danny's been talking about forever, making not a 52-week high. Walmart is making an all-time high. And then you juxtapose that with Target, which is making with effectively within a couple dollars a multi-year low which is astonishing if you think about it, and it speaks to exactly what's going on with the consumer. And when you see a dollar gen miss two quarters ago, have a precipitous move to the downside, only to have it happen again, a stock that's probably now been cut in half from its all-time high, and then you hear some of the commentary out of the CEOs, they're talking about a consumer. Think about it. Typically, when things are going bad, people trade down to dollar gen or to dollar tree. Now they are trading down from Dollar Gen and from Dollar Tree. So it really makes you wonder. And again, I don't want to be this doom and gloom person, yeah. but it does not paint a particularly good picture. Yeah. So earlier in the week, the FT had an article, economists grow gloomier guy on 2024 as central banks delay rate cuts. So Danny, this is important here. You're seeing some economic growth globally being ratcheted down for 2024. And if you think about the stock market being down in 2022, at least here in the US, it was discounting a recession in 2023 that didn't happen. In 2023, we have an S&P that's up 16% and NASDAQ's up 30%. And now you're starting to see economists get a little less hopeful about global growth, about growth here and the like here. What's in store for 2024 um, with stocks here? Because again, it's been a bit of a seesaw. Here's the amazing thing about that title of that article, yeah. right? If that is the actual right title. Economists grow gloomier on 2024 as central banks delay rate cuts. The delaying of rate cuts could be because the economy is still, employment still holding up yeah. in general. We know it's really about inflation and people look at certain things, but I mean, listen, Germany's numbers came out today. They're atrocious, right? They're in a recession that we've known. What I've been talking about for the last several weeks and several months is where is the growth going to come from outside of the U.S.? Yes, the U.S. is better than I thought. It's been strong. Who? Where's the growth coming from? And that's the problem. Normally in a cycle, U.S. does poorly, Europe's okay, vice versa. And this isn't a crisis by any means. This is a normal economic cycle. And when rates stay high this long, like they have, right, and there's funding needs and there's debt to GDP levels that we're seeing across the globe and the QE game is over, again, reconciling with that, I think, and really coming to terms with that is the problem here. So I do think we've been talking about this delay. There are recessions occurring in various pockets around the globe right now. I don't really see a bright spot in just relying on central banks cutting rates, right? And now it's been pushed back on Fed fund futures later in the spring next year, whether it's January, March, or May, like whatever it might be. I don't really think it matters right now because What's going to get us those rate cuts? What's going to happen? Mm -hmm. It won't just be inflation coming down. It'll be employment, unemployment rising and employment coming down. And I think stocks aren't priced for that. Danny talks about economic cycles, and I think he would agree with me on this one. There are no longer economic cycles. What we have now are credit cycles. And I think we're about to be, again, my opinion, I think we're about to be on the wrong side of a credit cycle. For the last 10, 12, 13 years, obviously, the credit cycle has been extraordinary 
on the back of zero interest rates and free money. Now is when things start to pay the piper, as they say. And you're, I don't want to get all wonky here, but you're seeing it with Japan. We've talked about it for weeks now, right? And I will tell you, we will come in one day and you will read or hear Bank of Japan intervenes in the yen, intervenes to try to stop the yen from falling. And that will work for about six hours because that genie's out of the bottle. And as their currency continues to deteriorate, their bond market continues to spiral. It has ramifications here, not only here, but globally. So the credit cycle, which was great for a lot of people for a long time, is on the other side of things now. I want to rehash something I mentioned briefly last week that I should have given more time. And that was my example of my buddy, Chaz, has a key bank, yep. right? And he's gone now from key bank, went to JP Morgan. And when you think about the corporate debt that these banks are going to have to issue now over the next three years, just in general, keys debt, I think, trades at around 9, 9%. I think it's an eighty. It's trading at 85, whatever. The I think that's the yield to maturity, so to speak. So if that's the case, they have to earn, obviously, more than that, obviously, in the marketplace on their loan. So that's the first part. The second part is this note out today that Dan McNamara, my buddy Rosie, my Rosie, Mark Rosenthal, who's a great credit trader, brought to light is that the FDIC is selling CIVB's portfolio of multifamily. It's $33 billion mm -hmm. worth of multifamily paper in the US. Now they're going to take most of the risk, the government, et cetera. There's a lot of paper out there, not just from that in general, that's going to come up for refinance that's kind of out there. And when I hear one more time about how private credit is supplying, oh, don't worry, where the banks have left, private credit steps in. Yeah, it's great for private credit because you have floating rates that they're earning. That's not good for the companies that are borrowing. And that's, I think, the problem with the disconnect is that cost of capital is going up across the board. This is not just that's a right. lag effect. Yeah. There is something structural going on within the banks that are going to be are forced to either offload certain papers. So I just think, again, I get myself all worked up and negative. There'll be things to buy. There'll be things to buy at some point, but these are the things that I think are just now working. You weren't all worked up and negative on the pit in, in United Center on Tuesday. Well, it's hard night to be when you're in heaven. That's heaven. Yeah, that's field of dreams. That was right pretty there. epic. So we had guy. We had a little family affair there. Okay, we were with some of our friends from the CME group. Danny had his youngest son there. I had my twin brother. I had my older sister. I had one of my high school friends. It was pretty pretty epic, guy. If we were going to get you to a Pro Jam concert, would you find yourself in general admission in the pit? No, definitely not. <laughs> I, I, no. I mean, there, there's a better chance that I would attend a Met game in October. Oh, stop it. Assuming they're still playing in October than being in, in what do you call it? The pit, dude. Why Come would on. anybody want to be? I mean, unless you're Vincent Price. Oh, well, right. it's pretty in cool. Pit, you, I just want to say one thing. You were on the floor yeah. where the, the Bulls... Yeah. Blackhawks, and you're looking up in the rafters. There's a lot of tide. That's Tidal yeah. Town. I mean, Boston's Eddie, pretty good. New York's, Chicago, yeah. in there, it felt like real Tidal Town. Anyway, gave a nice shout out to Jordan. Uh, yeah, he often he does in that building here. A little <laughs> housekeeping note here. Okay, CME Group, our fine partners are hosting a bond trading challenge. It's called Battle of the Bonds. It starts. You got to sign up by Friday at 4 p.m. Central Time, and it goes through September 10th through September 15th. You have a hundred thousand margin account of paper trading, but you trade bonds, okay, in that period of time. The winner can win 2500 bucks. the second place, 1500 I think the third place, less than that. Guy, Danny, and I are all going to be participating in that. It's going to be a lot of fun. So please go to cmegroup.com slash bonds challenge. The first hundred listeners who take a screenshot of the registration, email it to contact at riskreversal.com, send it to Amanda. You know the drill. You're going to get a risk reversal media 
water bottle. They're pretty dope. So do that. Participate in this challenge with us. We've already had a lot of people sign up. We've been promoting this on the market call. That's pretty cool. Guy, should Danny give us a little pick to click here for the NFL? It's week one, baby. Hold on. Before I get into that, we're entering. We have a contest among the three of us. Yes, so we do. What is it? What is it going to be? What are we going to do? Uh, we're, so we're the gonna... winner amongst the three of us? Yes. Yeah. What, what the we winner going to do? $1,000 to a charity. Fine. Of, yeah, all Done. Right. So NFL kickoff. Yeah. This evening, right? Don't As like. we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. Correct, but I'm not picking the Thursday night I got game. It. Okay. Just two quick picks here. Yep. I believe the Super Bowl, I know, it's, I like the odds in of Vegas, it, are going to be Philadelphia versus Pittsburgh, the yeah. Eagles versus Steelers. That's my belief. Therefore, part of that belief would be to take the Steelers at home on Sunday against the San Francisco 49ers as an wow. underdog getting two and a half. I want to say dog. something about Mike Tomlin, okay? He's been coaching for 16 years. He's never had a losing season. I want that to Maybe. sit in. Longest streak in history. I mean, kind of, team was rolling a year in, so was San Fran, but I believe in Pittsburgh two and a half. Second one, sorry, Vinny. I'm taking the Bills minus two and a half in New York against the Jets. I just don't I just don't see it. I'm not a believer in the Jets. Yes, Aaron Rodgers may have a decent game, but I like the Bills laying two and a half. So I have one home dog and against the other home dog. Those are my two picks, but I like the Philadelphia Eagles versus the Pittsburgh Steelers in the Super Bowl. I think it's over wow. 100 to 1. So there you go. Guy, what do you got? Can I tell you something? I love what you did there because we're in a pool, the three of us. They call it a 250 pool. I won't get into the granular details, but I have the Pittsburgh Steelers. I think they're going to surprise people this year. I'm with Danny. At the flip side, the Eagles still have the best roster in football. I think they wire to wire it on in the NFC. I also love the Chargers. So I like what Danny's doing there. But I'm going to give you a team that, I think it's going to surprise people this year. And it comes in the form, Dan Nathan, of your Chicago Bears. They've been awful. Yeah. But you know what? They have the makings of a pretty solid team. I like what they're doing in Chicago. And I think they're going to surprise people. And that surprise will be to the detriment of a lot of you Viking fans out there. So keep your eyes on the. Remember last year I gave you the Jacksonville Jaguars? Yes, yeah, Nobody believed it. This year I'm giving you the Chicago Bears. I, I'm short the Jacksonville in our 250 pool, and that gave me the ability to buy your Giants and my Bears guy. All right, real quickly, I'm, I'm going to have an epic football weekend, just so you know. I'm going to be in Boulder for Coach Prime's first home game versus Nebraska Amazing. at Folsom Field Saturday morning, and we all were talking, everybody was talking about that TCU upset. That was pretty epic. Coach, Coach, Coach Prime, who? you know, you know Primetime, Deion Sanders guy. Come on, that's Oh, Coach him. Sanders. Yes, uh, Coach. No, no they're I calling him I, Coach Prime. Can I tell you something? No. Yeah. You may. And then I'll never say Coach and Prime. And then, guy, unless on, his last, last name is Prime, I don't call him Coach. That's Coach Sanders. Yeah. But please yeah. continue. And then on Sunday, I'm jackassing it over to Mile High, and I'm going to see the Raiders play the Broncos. That's a good football. Yeah. Football. Uh, listen, anyone, right any beginning of season one. Right. Yeah, any beginning of season. All right. So. Listen, we covered a lot. Guys, please go to our, our CME, that the Battle of the Bonds. Participate with us. That's going to be a lot of fun. If you're one of the first 100 to sign up and send the email over there to Amanda, contact at riskversal.com. You're going to get a riskversal water bottle. And stick around for my conversation and Danny's conversation with Savita Subramanian. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. 
iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. We're back with Savita Subramanian. She is the head of U.S. Equity and Quantitative Strategy at Bank of America. Savita, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Danny, we've all known Savita a very long time. I know you've been trying to get and her on we've been here. trying to get her on the pod. We are, what, almost two and a half years, a little more than more. that? Maybe yeah. almost three years. Wow, yes. I didn't realize it was, that. There was some ghosting going on. Maybe it was like an email <laughs> blocking thing. Who knows? I don't know. But I finally cornered you. straight to spam. I cornered you on the set of Fast Money. And basically, we ended the show, Danny, you'll love this, is we do that final trade segment. Yes. You were on for the full hour and you were brilliant. Okay. Oh, thank you. And I, my final trade was, I think yields go lower. Okay. And, uh, you know, and I was long the TLT and she goes, Oh, and you know, that final segment, it's meant to be a, like a two comments. Yep. And you, she goes, Oh, and she goes, Oh, oh no, yields are going higher. Right. She, she said, no, like matter of fact. And I said, really? I said, because I, I just gave my final call. Oh, she goes, you want to bet? And, and she bet. And, See? And, and that's what she I, did I'm successful betting against okay. him as well. So, yeah. so then a couple weeks later, I was like, okay, you win because the 10-year was at 3.8 and I think it was just like 4.1 or something like that. So you win, but then you lose by coming on the pod with us. No. Love it. Uh, you make us all smarter when we get out of here. So. Fair yes, enough. I well, know. You, listen, again, like I think I, said, I just needed to win a bet with you in order to come on to your There you go. So you should get, do that with By all the way, there's, yes. a, there's a large club of people that have won bets <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. against Dan. So and, and usually I think we could sell on Madison Square Garden. It, usually, yeah. it costs me money to charities, just so you know. Yeah. All, right. Right. all right, let's let's get into it. Because, listen, on our pod, Danny, Guy, and I, we kick around a lot of ideas, a lot of thoughts on the markets, this and that, whatever. We often think a, a lot alike. And so it's really good to have some folks who like challenge our way of thinking and everything like that. One of the things I think was really interesting, and I know that you've been in the strategy game for a long time, but I know you also talk to a lot of really smart investors. And part of gauging sentiment is getting pushed back, right, from yes, your clients and yes, that sort of thing. absolutely. But at the start of 2022, most strategists were really bullish for the most part. I think we can all agree on that. And then even the most bullish ones threw in the towel late last year, right? Mm-hmm, and it was kind of mm-hmm. near the bottom. And we were saying, we were waiting for a lot of those folks to do that. And now it seems like people are back to being really bullish with the S&P up where it is, you know, up 16% of the year, the, the NASDAQ up 30% of the year. Talk to us a little bit about your thought process. You were on CNBC's Fast Money a couple days ago. Mm-hmm. You laid it yeah. out, I think, very succinctly. We have a lot more time to go through it a little bit. I think there's some things at odds a little bit with what your price target range yes, is. You yes, have an S&P yes. range, 4,300 to 4,600. We have an S&P that is at 4,450 right, right now. So, so we that's look what, bearish. Right in, the, yes. right, right in the range. So you lean bearish, but you have a positive outlook for the economy exactly. and for stocks longer term. Exactly. So let's and for stocks in the S&P 500, except for... The Magnificent Seven. You like the equal weight. Basically, the the equal weighted benchmark is the easiest way to express this theme. And I feel like that's a buy and hold strategy. But what 
problematic right now is that the benchmark is basically two benchmarks. It's the Magnificent Seven and then everything else. And I feel like that that driving force of the Magnificent Seven is the only area where we do hear bullishness from clients. This is all I hear from the equity bulls is that we've got the tech, we've got the AI, we've got the growth. Those are the new core holdings. That's what you got to own. They're easy to get in and out of, right? They're large market They're caps. They're yep. very thematic. Mm -hmm. They're good companies for the most part, except maybe one of those seven. And we won't go into that <laughs> one right now. But no, I can see why. And you can play a theme in them. And yes. that's the one I think that fund managers use to express either underweight or overweight. And then it's easy to Athlete. get there. So I totally understand that part. But I think just to go backwards, because I was looking at research that you've written, and in, back in 2021, when inflation was apparent to everyone but the Fed, yep. you were preparing for it. And you said, selectively, the two groups that should work were energy and financials. Energy's almost doubled since you said that, right? And obviously, there's a war that, and all that stuff. The banks and financials, other than Civ B, who no one who could predict it at that moment that these banks would mismanage their balance sheets, they haven't been a horrible place to be because those are traditionally the ones that kind of get some type of benefit from inflation. Exactly. So I know you try to be a little bit more tactical than just say by the S&P to the point you just made. Just to jump forward here, come back right now when we're sector specific, when you say equal weight S&P, let's dive into some of the sectors that you like here because we, yeah, yeah, we try yeah, to be absolutely. constructive here. So our overweighted <laughs> sector, yeah. Yeah. let's talk about what we, we like. We do try to be. No, but this, is, this goes back to the Jan 2022 thing where yeah. it seemed like most strategists were bullish on the S&P 500, but there was lots of things lots of sectors that were screaming like mm -hmm. we were about to actually have a difficult period. Yes. So I do think the sector rotation stuff is very important. It's critical, yeah. right? Yeah. So we are have a very cyclical tilt in our portfolio. We still like financials. I know it hasn't worked, mea culpa. But I really think that large cap U.S. regulated banks and insurance companies have been summarily discarded along with the bathwater of risky regionals, etc., Regulated banks can't make mistakes. They literally aren't allowed to do bad things anymore. <laughs> so I think that's one area that should be working, but it hasn't. Um, I still love energy. I think energy is a really interesting secular theme because what's happened is that all of the energy CEOs stopped paying themselves on production targets and are now paying themselves on capital allocation and ESG and all of these other goals. So they don't really want to produce, right? That's going to trip up a lot of their other compensation targets. And I feel like until we see energy CEOs go back to being paid on production, that's a sector where you're going to see supply constraints, very strong discipline around capital return. I feel like the multiple should be a lot higher than where it is today. But I don't, again, I don't feel like folks are recognizing this sea change in the industry. Very important comment you made there. And I would add to that, that they've been around for cycles and cycles. So they're around pre-QE. Yes. They know how to manage into the point. They've spent exactly. time cleaning up their balance sheet. Yes. They're not going to have the debt maturities. And now some have a lot of debt, but they have a ton of equity as well. To your point, buying back stock with cash flow generation. And right. on the financials, I wholeheartedly agree with you. The large cap banks, though, are in so many different buckets. If you are bullish on the markets, not you, I'm saying people that are bullish on yeah. the markets, if you believe that, that means M&A is going to be coming back, the IPO calendar is coming back, and you're 100% right. The big banks are going to be the winners from all the regional banks that are now basically calling in credit lines that the big right. banks are now getting. These smaller banks are forced to raise debt at 9%, 10%. They have to charge 12 or 13 on their loans. They're going to win. The big banks are going to keep getting better. So I totally agree with that. It's a low risk, a little bit higher reward place to be. And they pay dividends, they return capital right. when they're allowed to. And I do think <laughs> if the market gets a little bit crazy in terms of bond prices and so forth, that 
the Fed and Treasury will be more lenient with them on some of the requirements, SLR ratios, I believe at some point are going to come and relieve. One could imagine. So, I mean, yeah. I don't think the Fed wants to cripple the economy by disallowing banks from lending even further. I think the overhang for financials overall is just the idea of depositors demanding more. But I do think that what's interesting about the banks is that they've been generally underweight over the last five or six years. And every time the yield curve changes from one theme to another. What I hear is a new reason to be bearish on banks. And there is no phase of the yield curve where it feels like investors think that's good for banks. There's got to be some point in yield curve steepening that's actually positive for banks. And I think that might be right around now. So there's just general loathing of financial services. And I think also on top of that, we've been all kind of training ourselves to expect this massive recession that's always being pushed out a little bit. Banks don't do well in recessions. You've got to avoid them. You tell me what you think, but I feel like we're all using this 2009 playbook. Yeah. You talk about that a little bit. So you, you, you have a note out on Thursday, more bricks in the wall of worry, yes. which I, I saw what you did there. Yeah. And it's interesting when you talk about when you got bullish on energy and financials, it was this summer of 2021. You know where the S&P 500 is? It's right where it was in June of 2021. So the S&P hasn't made a whole heck of a lot of progress, obviously, since then. It had a really bad year last year. Let, let's talk a little bit about like the macro for a second. And then I, I think we highlighted two really important sectors and we'll look at some other sectors. And I definitely want to get back to tech a little bit too, but let's talk about that. Let's talk about your S&P range. You know, mm -hmm. let, let's yeah, talk let's about how it resolves itself in, yeah. in a way. If we were though to be on the precipice of a recession, mm -hmm. and I know you look at a lot of the leading indicators, not particularly great right now, the S&P at some point will start to discount that. It hasn't at the current valuation point. So you're at two, $215 for 2023. Where are you? for S&P earnings for 2024? Let's call it 235. Okay. Yeah, I think we we see a, a recovery. I actually think Q2 will be trough earnings if, if we're right about mm -hmm. the economy and no recession, just sort of a soft, gentle landing. I do think though that the earnings are going to be very bifurcated. So where you're going to see a, a pickup and an acceleration are in some of the higher beta, more GDP sensitive companies, mm -hmm. because those are the companies where you've seen estimates cut and now starting to be increased. Consumer discretionary stocks, they're more underweight than they've ever been in the history of our data back to 2008. But these stocks have actually seen revisions to the point that they're now in line with expectations for consumer staples. So while everybody has gone to consumer staples as this defensive hedge, their earnings are actually starting to deteriorate. Consumer discretionary earnings are coming back. I think that's another area where you could get some juice from being more cyclically oriented. It's funny though, like yeah. look at consumer discretionary, a little ba basket, you could say maybe these are some stock specific things, but look at Starbucks, look at Nike, look, right, at, right. look at how Disney's acting. They're saying they're something not acting very, well. they're, they're not acting well. Mm -hmm. and, and, so, and maybe that has to do with some other stuff here. But let's go back to this whole idea of the S&P well, uh, market cap. Can yeah, we actually just drill down on that? Yeah. I think the reason they're not acting well is because there is this itchy trading trigger finger. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the right term is. You probably, no, probably have a, yeah. a term for yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> I just invented yeah. it. Yeah. But I don't think it rolls that easily yeah. off the tongue. But I feel like there's this sort of fever pitch, like emotive response to any negative consumer news. So we got some bad earnings numbers last week. Those are the earnings that we heard about a couple of weeks ago that drove stocks lower were really just two small 
companies that contribute Dollar Tree and Dollar to Gen. the S&P 500. Yeah, but the, a lot of the department stores were not particularly great. I think what's interesting, though, is if you look at the earnings makeup of the S&P mm-hmm. discretionary sector, it's mostly Amazon and Tesla. Yeah. And then you take those guys aside, and the biggest contributors are actually retailers of goods to middle-income consumers. Yeah. And in our credit data, in our credit card data, that's the area of the market that has hung in there, is doing really well. And what's happening is that higher-income consumers are trading down into some of these medium-income plays. So I think that's been that sweet spot for the S&P 500. Services spending is slowing, which is usually better for the Russell 2000 than the S&P. Luxury goods spending is slowing, but that's more Europe than US. So I feel like what's happening right now in terms of inflections in consumer spending is actually all favorable for the S&P 500 rather than other areas. But stocks are behaving poorly because anytime we hear any negative news, like student loan repayments, I feel like that was just a red herring because when you actually look at the magnitude of loan payments, they're so small relative to disposable income. It's something like 50 basis points. Just to push back a little bit there, I think it's not just about student loans. It's credit for the consumer, well over a trillion dollars at this point. And the rates are moving higher and all the revolving debt is out there and it is getting repriced every day. Sure. And in some of these retailers that have private label credit cards are underperforming and they're seasonally underperforming. And so part of the bank's problem right here is they're going to have to reserve more potentially. The big banks will be fine. And I think that maybe is what's hurting the discretionary area. Now, we've been bullish or I've been bullish on Walmart because the whole trade down aspect of it. The whole – and yes, it's not a cheap stock, but I think people – and I think you agree, will pay a premium for consistency and earnings. And I think they're in a great spot. They're fine. And they have the food, Angle. huge food category for people to come into. So yes. I think what you're describing, and I think what we believe, it's a stock picker's market. And you can find things you can own here. Yes. It's not about buying that particular ETF within consumer discretionary, like you just mentioned that Tesla and Amazon are one and two. They're, and they're 45%. Right. right. And so exactly. it's hard to track those as two of the Magnificent Seven lie in it. But again, Abercrombie had a great quarter, right? Yeah, now, if you're exactly. tracking, so and, you, and, so and you've made the point, and I've talked about this, we've talked about it on the show, that you got to pay a premium, give credit to management teams which have seen cycles. And they've been through it before. They don't blame the Fed, they just deal with it. But the one thing that I want to talk to you about and really get into, and you've been doing this since 2001, so you've seen cycles, is this whole living in a world with no QE, living in a world with the reality oh of these higher rates, because I don't believe people have accepted this. Forget about the lag impact. The the impact's rolling. It's happening real time. Is that, and I think the consumer itself has been willfully ignorant to managing their personal expenses and how they're dealing with their disposable income with the thought of, I'm going to get a check. I'm going to get a seamless check if things go really bad. I'm not saying they're consciously thinking about it. I think they've now been trained. I think that the belief that the U.S. consumer, which is the most resilient consumer on planet Earth, mm-hmm. always will surprise to the upside. I've never underestimated. I, don't, I feel like it's different this time in terms mm. of – so I want to get your thoughts on that. And then mm-hmm. one other point you made, you can put this into the same category, which is the whole mortgage rate thing, which I know is not having an impact because their arms aren't out there. They all these adjust rate mortgages. However – that means the flip side of that is that when the Fed does start cutting, you don't get the benefit on the upper side. I right, threw a lot right, in there, right. kind of all related That's to the consumer, true. so I'd love to get your thoughts. Yeah, I think the consumer might be better positioned right now than they have been in prior 
let's call it slowdowns or wobbly periods. And and one reason is if you look at just arms as a percentage of mortgages, it's like we're in a different world. Like I think in the US, 15% of mortgages are adjustable rate, the rest are fixed. So the idea here is that that homeowners have a stay of execution. They can figure out how they're going to navigate rising interest rates as we get to that point. The second thing I would look at is I think the wealth effect was scary. And that's why I worried about the consumer last year, because I thought the market was going to move lower, even lower than it did. And we actually saw a pretty strong rally in the fourth quarter. I think the wealth effect is less important than having a job. So where you're seeing spending weaken is in those higher income cohorts like Silicon Valley and Wall Street. When you start to see mass layoffs across like middle America, that's when I would worry about consumption overall. What's interesting is I think that the job market and the labor market in the U.S. is tight for two structural reasons that have to change in order to see more broad spread layoffs. One is just this great resignation during COVID. People just left. And unless all of those early retirees come back and start looking for jobs, that's going to remain relatively tight. And then the second is immigration policy, where our legal immigration policy is pretty tight today. So I think those are two structural phenomena that are creating a still tight labor market. Average hourly earnings is finally higher than CPI. So real wage growth just inflected positive. And what we've found is that real wage growth is probably the best leading indicator for consumer discretionary earnings growth. So I feel like that's a really important signal that wages are remaining sticky and higher, but actual prices at the grocery store are coming down. So people have money in their pockets. They actually have a little more money in their pockets than they did a year ago. So maybe corporate margins take the brunt of the consumer margins? Is that what you're saying? Well, labor-intensive corporate margins are going to get squeezed. But even labor-intensive... Okay, so this is where it gets really good. I feel like there are so many reasons to be excited about stocks today and about corporates because they're focused on all of the right things. So if you think about what companies have been spending on over the last few years, labor-intensive companies have been spending money on automation. So all the automation plays like in industrials are just minting sales growth. And labor-intensive companies are finally addressing the idea that it's expensive to hire people and we can do more with less and we're going to get efficient. That's when you typically see multiple expansion in a more pronounced way for companies. So we looked at labor-light companies versus labor-intensive companies. Labor-light companies always outperform labor-intensive companies. It's like a chronic alpha signal. The other thing that we found is that when you're in an environment where companies are actually focused on efficiency and getting less labor-intensive, their multiples expand. So I feel like this is the reason to be excited about old economy, sleepy companies like financial services and But but we've done this before. And so so going back to the cycles and remember how it (laughs) ended. Like, you know what I mean? I'm just saying in the dot-com. And I think that if you look at the, again, the S&P up 16%, and yes. this MAG-7 that makes up 25% of the weight of that. And then if you look at the NASDAQ 100 and that MAG-7 makes up 50% of the weight, sure, yeah. that excitement that you're talking about is actually infected the stock market. In, in, you know but what I mean? only in, in those stocks. Yes, but it's drawn up. So it's drawn the multiple higher. And, yes. and again, we could go back but to the But only in those weight. stocks. Right, so. only in those stocks. So yeah. I get it. Even at the lows in October of 2022, okay, yes. we had this huge differential between these top 10 stocks and then the bottom 90 in the, in the NASDAQ 100 or yes. the bottom 490 in the S&P 500. And it was crazy. So I guess... 
My, my question here is how does this, you sound excited about the long term. We talked about this in June because I think you wrote that note in late June. And I think some of the things that got written up at the time, based on what I heard you say and reading the note, the headlines in the financial press weren't as, as far as accurate about what you thought the near term outlook for stocks were. And I think you're saying that now too, in a way, you're at the midpoint of your S&P 500 range, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Which is basically up 15, 16% on the year, yet- you're really excited about stocks, corporates, and all of this asset light or, or product light, like you just Productivity mentioned. Productivity and efficiency. Pro, pro, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the stock market has pulled forward some of that excitement, in my opinion. But only in the Magnificent Seven. This is my point. I mean- and so people say this stuff all the time. The market's not a monolith. And you talk about stock pickers. Ultimately, correlations will- You're the quantitative analyst here. <laughs> they will go to one if there is a reason to sell. You sure. know, Just this week, Apple has sold off. $300 billion in market cap yep. off of a headline about from the China. Wall Street Journal about China. Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen there. Exactly. So this is the largest it's equity. It's just a headline. And, and, and NVIDIA right. sold off 10% in yep. the last week. Okay. So that's, you know, $125 billion. And, you know, what's the next headline that hits Microsoft? So my point is, if all of those things come together, the market will turn into a monolith. And the stocks that are cheap- I don't think that's really? true. I don't. I really don't. This is where I think that you can actually make some money. Yeah. So I think that what you want to do is look for companies that are neglected. So they're not crowded and they haven't been like picked up as part of this AI hype machine. But they're probably doing, they're doing the right things. Like when you do your channel checks and you talk to management, they're cutting costs, they're being smart, they're thinking about automation, they're spending wisely, they have a good CTO, whatever. And then, and I'm not the fundamental analyst, so I, I defer to our fundamental folks on that. And then think about the companies that actually stand to gain, not just from AI as part of it, but there's a lot of other kind of efficiency stories taking place right now. If you look at the kitchen of the average restaurant, it has transformed over the last few years, right? And that can happen to other industries. Financial services. There's too many people in financial services. We're all going to get replaced by bots, maybe, or you not know, some you. of us, probably me, Danny, <laughs> maybe Danny not you. Me. I will, for sure. <laughs> yeah. but, but I think that there, what you've got is a streamlining, cost-cutting efficiency story that is not even close to being priced in to what investors are expecting. So we're in a market where I think, to your point, we've lived through one cycle, which was falling interest rates, no inflation, tech just continued to dominate. Like It was like, buy tech and you'll be fine, except for 2001 and two. We're now in a market environment where I think it's going to become more difficult. Tech companies have to spend money to remain competitive. So it's now an arms race for everybody to be the, doing the right things. And that's where I think it is really an active manager's market. You I should agree. go back in the business. I, you I should totally get back in there. Stay, <laughs> stay tuned on that. Just in general, to Go back to your thoughts here, because I think the other big macro issue is yields. And yeah. I've argued the same as you. For a while, I'm like, if yields keep moving higher, it's a sign, other than the QT and international bank selling, yep. Yep. that maybe the economy is going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And it, people are scared of higher rates on the long end, more than they are, I think, on the short end for some reason. But how do you play the risk premium, which you've talked about, and then 10-year yields get up to, I'm not saying they're going there, get up to 6%, God forbid, or 5.5%. Sure. You're talking about an allocation perspective, really hard at these, in my opinion, at your target, 20 times, 215. I know you're going to roll to 2024 at some point on your S&P target. You're looking at those two side by side in a, I think, in a dicey economic outlook, right? That's going to have, obviously, this burning back through the atmosphere of high rates. How do you equate that 60-40 or how, what are you allocating to bonds at this point, I should say, versus stocks? And 
what multiple would you put on 1024 S&P if indeed you think we've troughed in 2Q23? Look, I think that on the multiple question, again, you got to break the market into two pieces. There's the Magnificent Seven, which are crazy expensive, and then there's everything else. And if you look at, at I think we did something where we ran the S&P X, the Mag 7, and it's trading at something like 15 times. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's changed a little bit. It might actually be lower today. But that's not stretched, and that's in line with the idea that the multiple of the market plus inflation should be something around 20, close enough, right? We're at 4% inflation. We're at 15 times on the S&P X Mag 7. So that's I think that's the first consideration is I almost feel like we shouldn't even have a target on the S&P 500. We should have a target on the S&P 500 X Magnificent 7. But I'll talk to my boss about that. (laughs) Back to you. The other aspect is yield. So when you think about real yields, I think the opportunity cost of locking in 2% real yield for the next 10 years is miserable. If you look at that 15 times multiple on the rest of the market, on the rest of stocks outside of the seven, you're getting earnings yield of something like 6%. You're also getting inflation protection because earnings are nominal rather than fixed. So I still feel like S&P versus 10-year treasury, no brainer. Why would you want to lock in 2% real yields for 10 years? That's yeah. punk return. You said about 235 in S&P earnings for next year, so from 215. So it gets you to a little less than 10% growth. What, what do you think the S&P 500 should do on that? And, and You know what I mean? Like it, Just include the Magnificent in, Seven yeah, for a second. Well, I think those guys might be going down a little bit more unless they massively over earn mm-hmm. versus expectations, which, which, which was, could which, be the case. Except that in the, only NVIDIA did that yeah. in this period. Okay, Microsoft t- sold off 10% after its earnings because they did not over earn relative to the excitement in and around yeah. their suite of AI tools and, and what they're going to do with open AI and the like. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah, exactly. Look, I think that we're at a point where the average portfolio manager has more than 40% of their holdings in just a a small subset of stocks. I think it was like one out of five active funds have more than 40% of their holdings in five companies. Mm -hmm. That's a world gone nuts. And these guys are, they're they're in a tough spot, right? Because they have to own the stocks that are driving the S&P higher because their clients want them to, but they can't buy anymore. They're actually tripping up their diversification requirements. So I think that's a cap on mega cap tech. Sure, they might be core holdings. Sure, they might be the best earnings growth that you're going to see forever, but who's left to buy them at this point, right? Now, if you take the rest of the S&P 500, my sense is that there is a huge underweight in anything with beta or cyclicality. And I think that's the opportunity because when you look at CapEx, when you look at manufacturing, when you look at this infrastructure cycle, not only do we have fiscal stimulus where companies are incented from a tax perspective to spend and and grow, manufacture and do stuff here, but we've also got this geopolitical national security risk of IP sitting in China that has to come back to the U.S. I feel like there are enough cross currents taking place right now that are bullish for the U.S. economy that haven't necessarily been factored into some of these cyclical companies. Again, I don't I'm not making an economic forecast. Mm-hmm. I rely on our economists for that. But they're actually pretty sanguine on on 24 and 25. So 2024, again, so if you have high single-digit earnings growth, the mm-hmm. S&P 500 as a whole, all 500 stocks, where do you think is S&P making new highs? 4,800 was that kind of all-time high from January 2022. Like, you're, I assume you're going to be publishing some sort of like – 
price target for the S&P? What, what is Unfortunately, it? Maybe we have to publish these snapshot ranges. price yeah, targets, yeah, yeah. which I think are silly. Right now, I would say with confidence that our best long-term forecasting mm -hmm. tool, which is just looking at price to normalized earnings mm -hmm. and, and projecting out returns, is spitting out something like 4 to 5% price returns per annum mm -hmm. for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. That's not great, mm -hmm. but it's still better than real yields yeah. and it's nominal. And then on top of that, you've got dividend growth, which I think could actually surprise to the upside. The other aspect that I think is interesting is if you look at, at performance of the S&P over the last 10 years, a very small percentage of total return came from dividends. Mm -hmm. And I think that dividends and, and cash return are going to become a much bigger part of the story Great. over the next 10 so, years. So real quickly about your excitement for stocks on the longer term. The idea would be dollar cost average in this environment for the equal weight S&P 500, like that sort of thing. Because or you, just buy it now and hold yeah, it and yeah. set it and forget it. I honestly think that the best pair trade from an asset allocation perspective is shorting 10-year treasuries and buying an equal weighted S&P 500. I don't know about the Russell because there's mm -hmm. a lot of zombie companies mm -hmm. sitting in the Russell that have just drifted in there because they're burning through cash and can't handle 5% hurdle rates. But most of the companies in the S&P 500 have cleaned up their acts. Like you, you said it earlier, energy and industrial companies paid down debt and cleaned up their balance sheets. I think this is one of those areas where you could make money just by holding the average company in the S&P and shorting 10-year treasuries. I think the other problem with 10-year treasuries and I know this is going to sound like un-American, and I'm not un-American. No, I'm very yeah. patriotic. Yes. But I think that there's a, a problem with the fact that our debt-to-GDP ratio now resembles an emerging economy, right? How does that resolve itself? Yeah, that's Public not... sector looks fraught. The private sector looks pretty good. So I'm going to push back on something you said earlier. And I like where your target is on the S&P because I think you could end up being right on the money. But if the big seven, the magnificent seven, sell off, Rest assured, there'll be a time period in there, and you're right because it'll be a stock picker's market for where the money goes. I think money flies and in, flies into treasuries at that moment, and I believe you that. Do? Well, I just think the knee jerk reaction will won't be. Let I me go find. I'm just this is my opinion. I'm just yeah. okay, yeah. and I'm, I could be wrong. This is how our bet started. This is, exactly. Oh, yeah. well, no, no, <laughs> I like it. I like it. And then I like it. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> From a retail perspective, forget about the institutions that yeah, own yeah, our yeah. professional it's investors. Spook okay, investors. it will spook investors. Mm -hmm. Therefore, everything will come out, in my okay. opinion, and there'll be a time frame. For a short now, period of time, we forget. Yeah. I I know that stock picking is a lost art. I know there are stock pickers out there that should have their list ready, and this is what we try to do on the show: is to prepare people for those exact moments that you're talking about. I just think you can. It pays me a little bit patient on that because if that does start to happen, I just believe it'll spook a lot of people. It'll hit confidence in in the market, and the wealth effect will turn around and go the other way. There will be things that uh, I just believe yeah. that if the if the magnificent seven sell off, all I'm saying is this, and yeah, you're yeah, into, yeah, into yeah. the puzzle, tenure the yields will come in. Because I believe people will say, all right, let me take a deep breath, institutions, let me park it some of this stuff in bonds where they can allocate accordingly the global funds that are out there. They can do that. That's what I see happening. But I think they're it, already parked in bonds. I don't though. think I I'm just saying yields are high enough here that if you really believe there's a contraction coming, and again, a stock price doesn't dictate contraction. So just because Magnificent Seven sell off doesn't mean, but it could be the realization that growth is not 
eternal. That, you know what, the market's going to have a check back here. I'm just saying that structurally, I think we're set up in that way where that occurs. But yeah, I could be yeah, wrong. Yeah, I'm yeah. just saying, but no, I like your I target on the S&P. I so. get it. Yeah. So look, if I had a target on the S&P X Magnificent 7, I would say that I think it could actually do, I think our models are saying like from a valuation perspective, it could outperform the S&P by a teen percentage points. Yeah. So that's a pretty healthy Yeah, I think spread. it's under by 10 for the year right now. So yeah. it should flip for yeah, sure. Yeah, so. yeah. All right. One last thing before we get out of here. Let, let's talk about China. Again, we started by talking a little bit about Apple and, and yeah. just the saber rattling that's going on. To me, when I think of three companies that are part of that MAG7, they're three of the biggest components of the S&P 500. It's Apple, it's NVIDIA, and it's also Tesla. They make about 13% of the weight. They're next. You know what I mean? As far as all these sorts of concerns are. And how how worried are you about the deflationary readings that you're that we're seeing in in China? That you know what I mean, like mm-hmm, economic mm-hmm, data. Mm-hmm. It just seems like um, the export data is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like they are going to export deflation. We have Europe that's already um, in, in a in a tough spot here as it relates to inflationary readings, but also growth. How important is China right now? And do you think our market participants are paying enough attention? I think China is a concern. China was the engine of growth Mm -hmm. for 20 years, and now it's starting to really look a bit scary. I do think that companies have already started to cut ties with China. So when you look at this reshoring theme, our economists are showing us data where, you know, all of the economic activity that was taking place between the U.S., half of it has been moved to Canada, Mexico, other regions of the world. So there's that. We've we've already started to decouple from or disentangle our supply chain from China. Direct sales exposure of the S&P 500 to China consumers is about 5% or less of total sales, so it's a manageable risk. It's mostly in tech, which is again another reason I don't love tech. I think tech has been the poster child for everything that's gone right over the last 20 years that's about to go wrong. Deglobalization, higher interest rates, it's harder to grow your business, hurdle rates are that much higher, no more free money. But I think outside of those areas, we've got an environment where companies are already incented and doing the things that they need to do to right. thrive but, but, And all those things are very inflationary in an environment where they're rates are They're inflationary for the U.S. Yep. Yeah. So they're inflationary for the U.S. and we don't have the end market, let's say, that you might have 20% of Apple sales come from China. That's an important sure, number. Yeah, think about Tesla, mark. 50% of their future their sales are expected to come there, not just yeah, access yeah, yeah. to raw, you know, rare earth materials and manufacturing yeah, and the like. But their so, end market right. is Right. So is if you lose that engine of growth, and then we've talked a lot about this precedent that had been set by US multinationals pulling out of Russia when sure. they invaded Ukraine. Like the, the China to me seems like a very underappreciated thing. We could go on and on about that. Listen, so I yeah, think it's important. Yeah. I do. But I think that the US has enough idiosyncratic benefits that we can navigate this. And I think that U.S. corporations are actually in a pretty good position today after most of the the really debt-ridden ones have been starved of capital and yeah. forced to clean up their acts. Yeah, we're going to be forced to clean up our acts pretty soon <laughs> over here. Listen, I'll lose a bet any day to Savita on national TV if she'll come back on the <laughs> podcast. So we really appreciate you being here and talking about another brick in the wall of worry because that's pretty cool. She wasn't even born when the wall pink floyd was yeah no i don't no, know where you so I was. was i'm 51 what I'm 51 yeah. yeah yeah okay that's crazy i'm 51 i'm 51 soon oh, yeah. see uh, i'm older than you you should listen to wow. your elders I, that's yes she doesn't look it though <laughs> no. I, i'll tell you that all right well listen savita we really appreciate you joining us on the table. yeah it's great to be I, here thank thanks you. for having thank me thank you this was fun
Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.